breakfast the same way again. We are in a series called The Blacklist, similar to the TV show where we're looking at some of the bad guys, the villains, that lead up to the crucifixion of Jesus, the Messiah. And today, obviously, we're talking about Caiaphas, but before we do, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been disappointed with life, disappointed with another person, disappointed with yourself, or even with God? In the spirit of Lenten transparency, how many of you have ever experienced disappointment of some kind? Let's see. Let me ask it a different way. How many of you have never been disappointed with life, another person, yourself, or God? Has anyone never been? One. God bless you. So we're in, we have pretty good common ground. You know, I, I think, as I've thought about it, you know, it's this, these expectations that we have, and then it's this reality that we experience create this gap, this disappointment gap. It might be with your marriage. The years you've logged in and that gap has just grown. It could be expectations you have with your kids or your family, your job, dreams, maybe dreams you're trying to see that come fulfilled and the expectations just, the reality is just not living up to the expectations. <clears throat> it could be your own faith journey. There's things you expect or dream or aspire to it and you're just not quite living that way. Perhaps it's the gap we experience with the expectation of Chicagoland sports teams. You know, baseball season has not started, and I already had someone say next year. I'm like, come on, Chicago. We can do a little better than that. I had coffee with a friend uh, actually this, this past week, and, and I was, we were just talking about some of this, and he says, he goes, I have a fantasy reality continuum. That's what he said we call it. He says, we have all of these fantasies, which I would call expectations, but he said they're, they're how we envision life to be, except that's not reality. That's just the way we want it. So it's a fantasy. And then we have the reality we experience, and there's this continuum. There's this gap, and sometimes it's closing, and things are living the way we want them to be and how we expect and, and envision them, and then other times it's going the other direction. And then he said, how we manage that continuum, how we manage that gap, uh, is a huge secret to life. And I thought about that. And I thought, man, so much of life is managing or having to reconcile these gaps that we have in our life between what we expect and what's actually happening. And so we're gonna have a, we're gonna have a little fun here. You're gonna show me your continuum. So we're gonna start level. And I want you to think about one of those uh, areas where expectations are our, our reality is falling short of expectations, right? Think about one of those areas of your life. Don't say it out loud. I want you to have a good drive home if by chance it's the person next to you, right? But here, do this with me. Let's, let's, let's do this, right? So think about one of the areas, one of the gaps of your life between fantasy and reality and show me how big that gap is. Now, let me ask you this. Is that gap, is it trending? Is it getting bigger? Or is it getting smaller? Which way is it going? Oh, we've got some that are, I mean, this is like a Pilates workout or something <laughs> going on here. Yeah, we could do it again, but I would guess as you think about life, all of a sudden there's a lot of categories where reality is just not meeting your expectations. We're going to return back to those gaps in just a second, but I want to talk about Caiaphas, high priest of Israel at the time of Jesus. Caius was a Sadducee, 
If you were here last week, uh, Dan Meyer, our senior pastor, he, he kind of unpacked these different kind of power groups in Israel. You had Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, scribes, and he kind of laid it out. But I kind of want to key on on two. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees were really the two, the two biggies. And the Pharisees were more of socio-political. They were the boots on the ground. They were the people out uh, in the streets with others. And they had a religious role to play in helping people live and follow the rules, the, the, the commands of God. And the Pharisees um, had also a whole other set of laws. See, they, they would follow rabbis, the rabbinic tradition. And rabbis would interpret the scriptures, and then they would add all of these other rules and stuff with them. And so uh, the Pharisees were really could put a burden on people because it wasn't just uh, one of the Ten Commandments. They would create a whole other list of other ways to live. Um, maybe like the Rick Warrens and the Dan Myers of our day, right? The way that people would follow them. And people would follow it as like gospel truth, except they didn't call it gospel truth then because the gospel hadn't happened yet. But, uh, but they, the, all of their laws and rules, they would view like the scriptures. And part of their job was to make sure people were bringing the tithes into the temple. The Sadducees, they were partners with the Pharisees. They uh, were the people that really catered to the temple, the worship center of Israel. Um, and together, the Sadducees, Pharisees really helped the people of God live the way God wanted them to do, at least the best that they could discern in their day under Roman power and authority. The Sadducees were a little different because they were only interested in what the Torah, their Old Testament, had to tell them. And they studied. They didn't care what the rabbi said. They wanted to know what God had said. And they studied and they studied and they studied. They were the scholars, the huge scholars of the day, and especially with the prophecies, because they wanted to know who this Messiah was. They wanted to be able to identify the Messiah and then put all of their energy behind them because the Messiah was going to fix everything. So they were impressive. Caiaphas would have been doubly impressive. Because, see, he was no ordinary Sadducee. This guy was hugely gifted. He was the best and the brightest of all of them. He would have had his doctorate of religious affairs at the Jerusalem University, if you will. And see, his, his, um, his savvy and his own intellect, it, it, it elevated him to not just be high priest, but also to chair the Sanhedrin, which was like the court, which was like the ruling uh, court that brought together some of these power groups together into one, and he chaired that group as well, this dual role. He was an impressive man, and he had accomplished a lot, which is so curious to me that someone who had devoted their life to the Scriptures, and especially to discern who the Messiah was, when Jesus actually stood before him, how he responded to me is such a puzzle or a mystery. You know, I grew up, uh, I grew up in the church uh, in Ohio uh, as a little guy. Like, we, we, we learned about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were the bad guys. And whenever we heard their name, it was like, you know, we hate them, you know. And so we had these songs, you know, like the Pharisees, it's not fair, you see. And the Sadducees, they're sad, you see. And, and so we sang these songs. And I don't know if it was good or not, but we had fun with it. <clears throat> um, 
But then you, I, I studied and I learned a little bit. And, and granted, I mean, they, they missed the mark and they had their own issues. But by and large, these people were, their job was to help Israel be a community set apart from the world for God's purpose. Their job was to help the people worship and follow God, to obey the commands that God had given them. Right? It was, it was their day to help the people do this because they believed that they could do it well then the Messiah would come and God was going to fix everything. And so their job was really to lead people there. I don't beat them up quite as much as I used to because they took their job seriously. They had their issues, right? And the Bible story really amplifies it. But they were just trying to be faithful to what they believed their call and their mission was as given to them by God. <clears throat> So how do you explain, right, back to that question, when the Messiah actually stands in front of them, when they're looking at him, how does Caiaphas, the one guy out of all of them who absolutely would have been able to identify the Messiah, instead of calling Jesus Lord and following him, actually uh, writes him off? He subjects him to an illegal trial. He declares him a blaspheming heretic, spits upon him, has him beaten, taunted, and killed. If Caiaphas, who knew the scriptures, I would bet better than any of us, if he couldn't see and identify and know who Jesus was right in front of him, how in the world do we? How in the world do we? I think part of the answer is you have to understand uh, what they came, come to understand who the Messiah would be, right? They studied these scriptures, there were all of these prophecies, they had it dialed in, and this is what scripture seemed to communicate to them. If, a little history lesson, 600 years before the first century, we're in the first century, right? The early years of the first century, 600 years or so before that, <clears throat> Israel was wiped out, almost, essentially. They were taken captive by Babylon, right? They lost their land, their homes, they're exported out, uh, no more king, right? Everything that was valuable and identified them as a people was gone. But yet God still continued to, they maintained their peoplehood, their culture, their identity. And then a couple of years after that, they were, a couple hundred years after that, they were able to come back to the land. And they rebuilt Jerusalem, and they started to settle back in, and they rebuilt the temple so they could worship. Um, but yet they didn't own the land. They had to, like, rent it back. It was the Babylonians, and it was the Persians, right? And then ultimately the Romans would overthrow Persia. Now Rome was in charge. And so this was the period. 400 years. There was no more prophecies being written. And, and the last couple hundred years leading up before Jesus, there was this messianic hope that they identified that there was going to be one, that there was going to be a powerful king in the royal line of David, a king that would be above all kings. He would be a conquering king, that he was going to overthrow all of Israel's enemies, that Israel would have not just their land back, but they were going to be powerful, and they were going to be prosperous, unlike anything they had ever known in their history, even the days of David and Solomon, far beyond that. And this king would be an agent, agent of God and would bring Israel back to true worship, would center them back at the very heart of God. That was the Messiah. And he would be a very impressive 
a world-changing kind of person and personality. He would not be missed. And they were waiting. This hope was bubbling more and more into zealots and some of these other groups, like they were, they were trying to force it to happen. <clears throat> and then enters Jesus of Nazareth, a poor, lower-class citizen from a nothing town, Nazareth. I mean, even when he called Nathaniel, Nathaniel said, can, this would be one of his disciples. Nathaniel goes, can anything good come from, Laz, uh, from, from Nazareth? Like, it wasn't the, the uppity-ups. Like, no one really had a high opinion of Nazareth. Jesus is a carpenter, probably in his dad's business, hardly royalty or kingly. And what's most interesting, scriptures don't have record, but if you read other writings around that time, Herod the Great was building a huge palace and temple in Sepphoris. It's another city just up the road. And very likely he would have employed, had every able, skilled craftsman building that. And we don't know, but there is a very, very good chance that Jesus every day went to Sepphoris or would go there on Monday and come back on Friday, if you will, with Joseph. And they would have contributed to building Herod's palace and temple. It would have been one of the wonders of the world at that time. It was going to be that magnificent. Jesus shows up when he's 30 years old. He did nothing to overthrow Rome. Ironically, he may have even helped build Herod's place. He didn't follow the Jewish, the, even the basic Jewish laws of Sabbath and the ceremonial washings, which everyone was accustomed to. And then he has the audacity to spread these rumors and claims as perhaps Caiaphas would say, that he was the one. And actually, even more than that, after hundreds of years of this anticipation for the Messiah, Jesus just steps up at 30 years old and basically says, here I am. You can see why those who have studied, those who have so dedicated their lives to be able to identify the Messiah who had the degrees, they were the experts. You could see perhaps why they would have dealt so decisively with Jesus. Their expectations were high. And Jesus comes in reality somewhere down here. And for them, that gap, like it was lunacy to think that Jesus was the Messiah. There's one other wrinkle, or maybe two other wrinkles in this whole mix, and, and Caiaphas already alluded to this a little bit. The, if you want to enjoy the good life, or at least to have a life under Roman rule, under Caesar, you must do at least two things. Pay your taxes and keep the peace. That sounds vaguely familiar to the season that we're in even right now, but that's, I'm not going to talk about that. Pay your taxes and keep the peace. If you did not do those two things, Rome did not goof around. They would wipe you out and wouldn't think twice about it. The other wrinkle was that it was Passover, the largest religious festival of the year, a million or more people pouring into Jerusalem 
and there would have been huge pressure on Caiaphas. Not just all of these, the temple and the centerpiece of all that and all the services and all that would have been going on, but, but he had to make sure that there were no disturbances. Because when you have that many people coming in, you can just imagine, right? You already have a few little factions or whatever, but they could not have a whole movement or uprise of other people do that because, because of the threats. I guarantee you Pilate was putting huge pressure on Caiaphas. He said, you can have your festival, but no one better step out of line. Because Herod was putting on Pilate, and Caesar was probably putting it on Herod. Like they, they, there, would, there could be no unrest. That is the context for where we are at in the story as we're entering now into the last few days of Jesus' life. And I'd like to read to you <clears throat> this interaction when Jesus and Caiaphas are finally face-to-face. But before we do, I want to give you a little context. This is in, we're going to be in Matthew tw- uh, chapter 26. You're welcome to turn there, if you will. But at the beginning of that chapter, it says this, Then the chief priests and the elders and the people assembled in the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said. There may be a riot among the people. Sadducees, people devoted. A Sadducee means a righteous man. These people were devoted by doing things the right way and following God's commands the right way. Is one of the commands, do not murder? But yet here they are planning and scheming on a way to kill Jesus. Here's the interaction. It begins in verse 57. And if you remember, Jesus, uh, he goes to the garden to pray, and then Judas comes, betrays him with a kiss. They arrest him, right, and they take Jesus away. That's what happens in, in 26. And then we read, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. Now, this is interesting because they were waiting. They were all waiting for Jesus to be brought in. What time of day? Where, where are we at? Do you, do you have any sense of what time of day this is? It's night, and it's probably very late in night because Jesus had already been in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying, and his disciples were following asleep. Do you remember that? He's like, can't you stay awake? Like, I need you to pray with me. And then he goes a little further, and he prays, and he comes back, and they fall asleep. Right? This was probably late, late into the evening. Yet, they have the Sanhedrin. They have all of these people gathered, ready for a trial, which would have been illegal. It was illegal to hold a trial that late. They kind of had their normal business hours. Interesting for people who are dedicated their lives of being righteous, of doing things the right way. Peter followed at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest, and he entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. This is a whole other discipleship message for another day, but isn't it interesting that Peter followed at a distance? He wanted to maintain his own safe distance from Jesus and what was about to happen. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for a false evidence against Jesus that they could put him to death, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Another command, maybe it's number nine, says, do not bear false witness. And here they are. They've they've got all of these people lined up, and they're trying to get two of them to kind of collude and at least say enough of the same thing that they could have something to stick to Jesus. Because see, back then, it wasn't easy to be found guilty. 
if, if, if one person saw you do something and they went to the cops, so to speak, it wouldn't count. You had to have two eyewitnesses in order to convict somebody. And they couldn't get two people to line up. And then it says, finally, finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Perhaps they have him. Because an act of terror on the temple would have been a big deal. But the fact that Jesus said he would build it in three days almost makes him sound like a lunatic himself because it took them decades and decades with massive amount of workers to build the temple and rebuild the temple. Three days was crazy talk. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer but this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. Instant, interestingly, Jesus is actually fulfilling prophecy in his silence. And then the high priest said to him, Caiaphas said, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Caiaphas has made it personal, and he's asking a question of identity. Who are you really? And then Jesus answers. He says, you have said so. Basically, yep. And he just didn't stop there. He goes, but I tell you, I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes, his robes, and he, and he said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need to hear any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard it for yourself. What do you think? You see, what Jesus said is not only am I the Messiah, Jesus said, I am God as well. And that was worthy of death, at least in their culture. They finally had what they needed because people wouldn't even say the name of God, Yahweh, out of respect, let alone make the claim of what Jesus just said. And these were coming out of some of their most core prophecies in Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. Jesus is quoting this back at them and they just went ballistic. And so he turns to them. He says, what do you think? They say he's worthy of death. And then they spit on his face. They struck him with their fists. Others slapped him. And they said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now, that sounds mean, but this was also a shame-based culture. And what they were doing, I mean, even though they were being very mean and <clears throat> violent, they were basically tearing down the identity and the character of who Jesus said he was because he couldn't defend himself. He could. He just chose not to. But they were just, they were um, shaming him and showing him to be a fraud in their eyes. What amazes me in this story is just how quickly behavior can spiral down and sometimes out of control. Caiaphas had big expectations, huge expectations of what God was supposed to do and who the Messiah was supposed to be, and he just couldn't accept a different reality. When Jesus stood in front of him, Jesus failed his expectations miserably. Miserably. Jesus was too small and too insignificant. The gap was, I mean, it was just unimaginable. That's Caiaphas. Just couldn't accept a different reality of what God was doing. What about you? What about you? Are there gaps in your expectations of what God is supposed to be doing in your life? Are there 
gaps that are just making you want to tear your robes that are unacceptable? Are you acting out or spiraling in some way in how you are managing or trying to reconcile gaps either with God, yourself, or others in your life? Are there spirals? Could God be standing right in front of you, active in your life, moving in your world, wanting to fill up those gaps and you are looking right past him? You're writing him off because he's just too small or is just not living into your ideals, fantasies, or expectations. One of the things I do is I just like to pay attention to what makes people angry or what they worry about or what, whatever brings strong emotions out of someone. Often, I'm curious about those things because they often reveal the heart. And I think they often reveal some of those gaps that we have in expectations, fantasies, and our reality. <clears throat> Lent is a season of introspection. It's a season of seeking God, of reflection, of challenge, of confession and repentance. And what I want you to do is I want you to think about those gaps. You're going to start that today, but I would encourage you this week, think about where do I have expectations that are being unmet? What is that gap? And what is going on emotionally within me? And how am I acting out, trying to manage those gaps? These are going to be tough questions, and they're a little bit of a tough journey because it's going to reveal things about us. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to take all of those, or even begin with one of those, and just submit it to God. And say, God, I need you to fill that gap. I need you in some way to lead and direct, reveal another pathway, change my expectations, but admit that you can't manage this yourself. You've got to open yourself to a different reality, because I can promise you Jesus is standing right in front of you. I don't know what those are for you. We, we've named some of them. For some of you, it may be you're just you're struggling with you know, just feelings and desires. So there's things that feel good for, to you or that you just want to do. And who is anyone to say that you shouldn't be happier to have whatever you want? Or, you know, we, we mentioned relationships, marriages, or other key relationships. You log in time, and, and sometimes that gap grows. And either you can be filled with resentment, or you retreat back, or you act out in some other way. What would it look like to remember the covenant that you made with God, where God was supposed to be the center of that relationship? Perhaps there's a gap in your comfort. Life was supposed to be easy. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Things are hectic. Things are hard. Finances aren't where they should be. Like, there's a gap. And God's not doing what he's supposed to do to fix the situation for you. Perhaps it's a gap in your future. I had a, a person I know just last week who came out of the doctor's office with news that they weren't expecting nor wanting to hear. Life is going a different way than what they had expected. Or maybe it's retirement, right? Maybe it's you're having to go to plan B, C, or D, and you really don't want to because you've worked hard and you thought this is the way it's supposed to be. And there's a gap. And you're praying out, you're, you're you know, saying, God, like, what happened? <clears throat> maybe it's your image. You know, we spend a lot of time managing our images. Everything from social media to what we project out to others, 
be curious if we invested as much time in our relationship with God as we do just trying to manage what other people see in us. Gaps. Maybe some of those are yours. You, you probably have many others if you stop and think about it. <clears throat> but I want you to hold those in your hand. And here's what I want you to picture. I want you to picture Jesus standing right in front of you. He's silent, but his eyes are blazing with love, and he's just standing there and he's waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting to see what you're going to do, what your next move is with him standing right in front of you, with these gaps that you're holding in your hand. What will you do? What will your verdict be? Will you tear your robes and say, God, you are supposed to be something different to me? And you just push him aside, or worse. That's what Caiaphas did. Jesus just couldn't meet the ideals that he had. Or we could humble ourselves. We could open ourselves to the possibility that, you know what? Jesus may not have come the way we thought he would, but he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he has promised to lead and direct our lives. And perhaps we need to just open ourselves. And instead of gaps like this, that we turn and find an embrace like this, where we just say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Because his invitation is still there. Will you follow me? Even into the gaps, even where the expectations aren't being met. Will you follow me? Will you allow me to fill those up and show you the way you should go? The invitation is there. What will the verdict be? I'd like to lead us just in a time of prayer to close. And this is a prayer of confession, and I'm going to start, but then I'm just going to, we're just going to give some space for you just to perhaps in one or more of those areas to say, God, I'm giving it to you. And this is just going to be the beginning of a journey. But when you dare, when you dare to, to invite Jesus into those gaps and say, you are Lord, I am not, have your way. I will have courage to follow you. What an amazing journey is ahead. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father God, we thank you, as we've said many times, just for your love and your grace. God, as we think about these villains, <laughs> God, we have to admit that in some ways there's little pieces of them in us. Sometimes there's too much of them, their life in us. And so, God, this is a, a time where we just confess God, we confess where perhaps we've had expectations of you or ourselves or of others, of life, that God just hasn't panned out. And God, there's been times where we have brought pain and hardship instead of seeking your will and trusting and following you. And God, some of these gaps in our life, they are very hard and they are huge and they have been there a long time. And God, this is not easy waters, but with you, you can do amazing work. Your job is to bring transformation in our lives. If only we wouldn't tear our clothes, but that we would just embrace you and trust. And so God, in this moment, we are simply just offering to you our confessions, areas of repentance, or just taking that first step to say, God, here are some of my gaps. God, we bring these to you now. <laughs> Lord, what a gift it is to bring anything and everything 
to you, especially our pain, especially our questions, especially our confusion, God, especially our sin. God, I pray for this journey that has, that for many just begins today as we deal with those gaps in our lives, the fantasies and the realities. But God, we invite you to step into those places. God, we, we invite you into our lives. And I just pray for courage for each one here, for the honesty and courage to simply follow you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name.